0: a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW Group, point prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero, and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors In Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors In Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Major General Roger Rowley served in World War II as a ground forces officer in the Canadian Army. For months, he and his unit prepared for the invasion of Normandy, but when the fateful day came, no orders arrived, so they weren't sent to France. Instead, they arrived on the beaches of Normandy two days after d day
1: My name is uh, Roger Rowley, R-O-W-L-E-Y. I'm a regular officer, or have been, a retired regular officer of the Canadian Forces, Ground Forces. I went to uh, Normandy with my unit right from Ottawa here, where I was first commissioned as an officer, and um, known as the Cameron Highlanders of Ottawa, and. Um, I served with them through the first year of the war. Well, the first 11 months, we were stationed in Iceland as the uh, garrison troops there. And from Iceland, uh, in the spring of 1941, we went to England. I was stationed there from then on until D-Day. Our unit uh, started off as divisional troops in the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division but only three units were taken out of that division to go to Iceland, and ours was one of them. Um, when we got back to England a year later, roughly a year later, we found that uh, we had been replaced in the 2nd Canadian Division, which was just arriving in England at that time. And so we were used as core troops. And uh, just to explain that, I guess I ought to point out that the unit to which I belonged was a machine gun unit. Um equipped with the Vickers Mark IV uh, and machine gun, uh, which is, sits on a tripod and uh, is, was a very effective uh, harassing and uh, defensive fire weapon, uh, remarkably long range. After we got to England and had been there for a very short time, um, we were issued with a new kind of ammunition called the Mark 7Z ammunition, which had a, a range of 4,100 yards. So that took us out of the realm of, almost out of the realm of close support. We could do uh, harassing fire up to four kilometers away. Mind you, You had to put four guns on a task like that. But it uh, it also meant that we had to convert from open sites, firing over open sites to a dial site, much the uh, same as an artillery weapon uses. So uh, that required that we really retrain ourselves and, uh, very shortly after we got to England, we did our first training concentration at a place called Netheraven, out in Salisbury Plain, which was the machine gun school. And uh, all the officers had to re-qualify and the non-commissioned officers and men. And um, after we had gotten used to this weapon, we used to do a lot of field firing in places like Wales, near Brecon in Wales. And uh, we went for a concentration every year to just make sure we were right on the look latest techniques, and so on. I guess when uh, we're talking about D-Day, we better start talking about how we prepared for it. And, of course, there had been a number of commando raids uh, on the French coast and various other places. And, uh, of course, the Dieppe raid, which uh, Canada was totally involved in. And after that, it became very clear that... uh, the techniques, uh, the weapons, uh, the equipment, uh, the vessels were totally inadequate for opening a second front, and uh, a great deal of research had to be done, and of course that that was went on, not really. As a company officer, you wouldn't hear too much about that, but uh, we knew they were developing the the swimming tank. A friend of mine, I knew it because he was down in Portsmouth, and they they were putting them over the side about once a week, and every now and again it would work, and quite often it didn't. But uh, they got that all sorted out. Uh, As far as our training was concerned, uh, we were in fine shape. Everybody, uh, I, I guess I should diverge for a moment and point out that at one point I was commanding the uh, Canadian Army Battle School, and uh, I was a young lieutenant colonel in my 20s, and uh, we, had a, we were a pretty hairy leg bunch. Uh, we did all the explosive work. Uh, we put infantry through assault courses. Uh, we taught them unarmed combat, uh, night fighting. Uh, we also took the mortar and carrier platoons uh, and trained them in, in combat roles and using certain techniques, command techniques, and so on. And uh, So this was done. The young officers and uh, non-commissioned officers who attended those courses went back to their units and divisions and uh, sort of spread the teaching, spread the gospel, as it were, and uh, there was the Canadian Army, I would say, particularly the 3rd Division, the Assault Division, which had some special training, were as fit as you could possibly be, and they knew exactly what they were doing. And they were masters of their weapons, uh, they knew the, their uh, tactical techniques. And, um, you know, it never occurred to me, and I don't think it ever occurred to them, that we weren't going to be able to carry out our mission. Uh, from the point of view of lack of training or anything like that. It was exciting stuff. Subsequently, of course, when we really started training, doing our amphibious training, that was a whole new game. And um, uh, I don't know, we have time to explain it, but uh, the staff officers had to do the staff work on how you would... Break up a unit into what sized fighting groups and how, what kind of vessels they would be in, uh, how the vehicles would be loaded, whether they could be separated from their passengers and brought ashore with just a driver. All of this stuff had to be experimented with and worked out. And there were a whole other group of people who were studying the beach organization, how, we would, how would they would get the vehicles off the beach. We had to learn how to waterproof our vehicles. Uh, so that you could drive a jeep uh, off the end of a ramp, and uh, uh, many times I've taken a jeep ashore. I've had it water right up to my shoulders, but uh, and, and wheels on bottom. And uh, of course, we had these breathers, uh, the the exhaust and air intake and stuff like that. Problem with that was that you had to get rid of it once you got on the beach or very shortly thereafter because the vehicle overheated and you just couldn't handle it. So you had to, we had special troops trained to to help us with that. We did a lot of practice landings. Um, The particular unit that I was with, I was still with the Camerons. There were some reorganizations that took place at that time. And we went up to Scotland, up to the Clyde, and learned all our amphibious tricks there and then came down from the Clyde uh, and uh, a place called Towers Castle. And then we did a lot of training uh, down in the south of England where we were positioned. Uh, for instance, we carried out full-scale live-firing exercises at Studland Bay and off the Isle of Wight. And uh, we were ready. Believe me, we were ready. And uh, the, the interesting thing about it, I think, is we didn't really know where we were going, but we kept doing these uh, sand table exercises uh, so that on, on coastal waters. We knew we were going somewhere, but uh, where we didn't know, and we didn't know when. And, but uh, when we finally got down to it, before we went over, as you probably know, we were concentrated in camps behind wire, so we couldn't get out for security reasons. And then we got our final briefings, and we'd been talked to by Field uh, Marshal Montgomery before every officer in the division was taken into a theater down in Brighton and, and uh, he gave us the word. A most inspiring fellow. And uh, it's a silly thing to say, but uh, after his reputation in North Africa, everybody had faith in this guy and, and rightly so. And he convinced all of us that he wasn't going to throw us in there if, if we didn't have a reasonable chance of succeeding. And it was exciting. I can remember uh, going over, and when I finally left Southampton, going across uh, across the channel with this, you know, armada of ships and airplanes going over your top, rocket ships going firing into the shore. It was really exhilarating. And uh, I don't know what other people's reactions were, but the reactions that I had was that if anybody can survive that, they won't be ready for us. They'll be hanging on the ropes. Well, it didn't quite work out that way, but uh, we had a, a better than better than good chance of succeeding there. And, and uh, I think all my guys uh, believed that, and it worked out that way. A lot of guys got hurt, a lot of people got killed, but uh, when you think about it, it was a gigantic operation. We had five divisions landing on a series of beaches, plus the airborne divisions, that works out to a, a division, Canadian division, at assault scale is well, normally would be about 20,000 troops with their auxiliaries. And uh, we're, we're looking at a lot of people. Over 100,000 men landed on the beach in, in a matter of hours. I mean, it was a gigantic undertaking. Nobody has any idea of how complicated uh, an assault landing is. Not only do you have to have a a beach organization that knows exactly what to do, but they've got to land right behind the assault troops. Of course, who don't have virtually any vehicles. And set up the beach for evacuation of troops, uh, for uh, laying down track so that vehicles that are wheeled vehicles can go across the beach. We had learned so many lessons from Dieppe, and we had practiced them. In, in dry what we call dry landings uh, and field firing exercises, leaving vessels, leaving the assault craft and landing on the beaches in England, that we were really getting pretty good at this. But I think the thing that really was the big gainer was that we got equipment that would lay down track. And they, the vehicles that did this were very specialized. Um, they were called... Uh, AVERYs, Armored Vehicle Royal Engineer, and they came in different patterns. They were built on a Churchill tank. There was a thing called a flail, which was to deal with the landmines. It had two arms that went out with a big drum out in front of the thing with hammers flying on the end of chains or hammerheads. And they, they would just cut it, explode every mine that was in front of them. And um, if you came to a water hazard, there were two ways of getting through that. They either had a thing called a fascine, which was a huge roll of chain sticks, and they just rolled it off the front of the tank. It landed; on, it was traveled on top of the tank, and that would fill in a ditch so that other tanks could go across. We also had a thing called a scissors bridge, which was born on top of the tank. It could be lowered down on, uh, as a derrick. And uh, that was all new stuff. We also had flamethrowers, tanks. And then for getting through the seawalls, they had a thing they called a petard tank. And it, it had a huge cannon like an old-fashioned mortar. And we're talking about, oh, 12 or 13 inches across, maybe more. And this was a conical charge. It hadn't a great range, but it, it could blow a hole through anything. And just... Take a concrete wall, and two or three of those, and you were through. The other thing was that uh, the soldiers were uh, trained so that if they got into a minefield, every Canadian soldier that, that landed on D-Day knew how to clear a minefield with his bayonet and how to defuse the mines and set them to one side and uh, have a roll of tape on his back, you know, and so he could cut lanes through the minefields. There wasn't a great deal of that necessary with these Averis early on, but they had a great deal of trouble down in Omaha Beach with the minefields, and they had a bad time down there, obviously, as we all know, poor fellows. But um, I think uh, you can't minimize the fact that we never would have made that assault landing in Normandy if it hadn't been for the lessons that we learned at Dieppe. Costly, but absolutely necessary. You know, a tactical disaster, but a strategic uh, miracle, really. My D-Day was uh, a little bit different. Uh, I was the second in command of a machine gun unit, and my commanding officer, of course, was in the assault wave and went in, and I had all the vehicles, like the communication vehicles and all that sort of stuff, with me in in an LST. And I was supposed to land, I was told, in the first assault reserve, which was, would have happened about the afternoon of D-Day, just depending on how things were going on that particular beach. But, of course, all the vessels were called forward by the port authority, and they were made into their flotillas, and off they went. The LSTs were quite a large vehicle, or ship, I should say, craft. And um, we had the whole of battalion headquarters in effect, all the adjutants and all those sort of people the CO's cook and you know <laughs> that sort of thing and uh, D-Day came and was just about over and uh, we were still sitting there tied up in Southampton and uh, we had a, a British Royal Navy sub-lieutenant who was in charge of the. he was the captain of the craft and I said well, we're supposed to be out of here by now and he said well uh, I can't help that. I'm sorry, we haven't been called forward. And so that day went by, D day went by. And um, the next day, uh, we finally got onto the authorities and they said they didn't know anything about that and they'd have to check. I think, I don't know whether they thought we'd sunk or, I, I I simply don't know. We never did find out. But anyway, so I didn't get there till the night of D plus two, I think it was, I finally. Made a, a landing and we, we had no problem, except that I had to face my commanding officer and he was some outraged by this thing. I, I don't know whether he thought I had been able to keep the vessel from sailing or what. I never did find out. But it was interesting about landing on the, on the beach because we'd done all of our exercises. And, and as I said, our final briefings told us exactly where we were going. And I think I must have traveled oh, several kilometers. By the time I got in there, uh, I, never looked at a, I never looked at a map. I knew every village, every road. I knew where to turn left, where to turn right. And uh, after going through the dewaterproofing and stuff like that, we just took off on our own little convoy, the agent and I, and the quartermaster, and we made it. We had absolutely no trouble at all. Well, except for the odd sniper. But, I mean, as far as knowing where we were going, we knew exactly how to get there. I didn't, at that stage, see very much of the resistance. I was at, uh, as I told you, we, our unit was a divisional support unit, and the battalion headquarters was, in fact, at divisional headquarters. And that was all right with me, because you don't, apart from getting shelled and sniped at and stuff from periodically, um, I wasn't really in combat at that stage. I mean, I, I had, I was armed and ready and taking all the natural precautions and going down to visit the companies. But um, uh, I didn't see much of the resistance at that stage. But, of course, they were there, and they were doing a good job uh, right all all the way. They were great. Just great. I was very exhilarated. I I keep saying that. I was very excited about this thing. It it was going fine. And I was kind of... uh, well, I shouldn't say this, I suppose, but it's really true. I think I, I was sort of, couldn't wait. I was a little trigger happy. I, I wanted to shoot at somebody. I really did at that stage. You know, you get trained to a peak where uh, this is what you've been looking at for four years. And uh, it's like if you're a boxer, the you know, when you've got a fight coming up, you're ready. And we were ready. And... Uh, all the fellows that I had anything to do with felt very much the same way. Of course, you know, there were there were bad, bad times. Uh, when you were under heavy shelling, out, that, as far as I was concerned, was the worst thing, because you couldn't do anything about it. You're sitting in a hole, you know, and all hell's breaking loose. Airburst coming and going in the trees and stuff like that. And there's no defense against that. And uh, that can be pretty depressing, but it doesn't last forever. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting people always say uh, what you know, what was your first contact with the enemy? Well, w- Minus, I say, I was two days late for the party to start with. But when we when we got to divisional headquarters, we were in a sort of a wooded area. And there were quite a few snipers around. And uh, we had a, a defense platoon who were there, but they needed some uh, assistance. And, you know, what's the odd shot fired at that uh, shadowy figure going through the woods and that sort of stuff? But nothing really exciting. That. Uh, the, the real fighting was going on down at the uh, company level. Our divisional machine gun unit was dispersed in companies going to each one of the three brigades in the division. They consisted by this time not only of machine guns but heavy mortars as well. As I told you before, we'd had several reorganizations. Now it was a, a very high power, firepower-wise. It, it was a very heavy fire in close support of the infantry so the our machine guns would be right down in the infantry positions. And uh, as second-in-command, as I say, I'd spell off the CO and I'd go down to these these companies and uh, spend some time with them, see how they were getting along, make sure their rations were getting to them and their ammunition and, and stuff like that, not terribly exciting. But I had to wait a little while till I got into combat. Along about uh, July, end of July, beginning of August, we were having a very bad time. Uh, as you know, I'm sure you know, uh, the Canadian forces uh, were putting in these limited objective attacks to hold the German armor on our front so that General Hogue and General Patton could break out at saint Lo, And uh, we had a bunch of armored divisions up there. And uh, we had some very bad attacks. And uh, one of the units that I subsequently commanded, uh, the Stormont, dundas and Glengarry Highlanders, who in fact come from Cornwall just down on the Ottawa River here, or on the uh, St. Lawrence River, I should say. I'm, I'm wearing their crest right now. But uh, due to a series of somewhat unfortunate circumstances, uh, they lost their CO, and um, he was posted to other duties, and um, I, luckily or unluckily, uh, fell heir to that, that job. So from then on, I was an infantry battalion commander. And uh, this was exciting for me because I'd run the infantry training school, battle school, and uh, I said, now, now I'm where I know what I'm doing, and, and, uh, and this is great. And I stayed with them right through until we, Germany. But uh, we saw, had a lot of contact then with the enemy, and I don't think I want to go into any heroics about, you know, taking out my Bren gun, which I did on a couple of occasions, and knocking off some fellas, or hopefully knocking them off. I, you know, the Germans uh, that we met, with the exception of the 12th SS Hitler Hitlerjugend Division, who were really wild guys, they were kids, they were all kids, you'd throw a grenade, toss a grenade at them, and they'd throw it right back at you, you know. Take the chance that it wasn't going to go off. I mean, they were, they were tough soldiers. But the German soldier was a damn well-trained soldier. And particularly their uh, non-commissioned officers, uh, they called Feldfabel, who was a field sergeant. And uh, they were old line, hard line, hard-nosed, regular non-commissioned officers. And they were damn good. They were just as good tacticians as many of our subalterns. They were; they'd been at it for a long time, and they were excellent. They were well armed, super weapons all the way along. I think their weapons really were better than ours. Their submachine, their Schmeisers, and uh, those weapons much better than ours. And of course, the eighty-eight, the famous eighty-eight millimeter, we had nothing could touch that. I mean, you, you know. Standing at that arm's length, uh, we weren't going to win that one. And um, I think you've probably had a chance to talk to Radley Walters. He probably uh, Waters. He probably destroyed more German tanks than anybody in the Canadian Army. He and General Amy, between them, pretty well did it all. And uh, But it was tough. Uh, there was nothing easy about winning that war, and don't let anybody ever tell you. There were good times. But uh, you didn't have them up in the front line. It was tough stuff. And, and that winter that we then went into, well, we'd left Normandy by then, of course. But I, I've got, I can't leave Normandy without uh, saying something about that first assault, really armored infantry assault, uh, invented by General Guy Simmons, the arm, first of the armored personnel carriers. By this time, I was commanding a battalion and, uh, you know, it was a fantastic experience to do this at night or in the daytime, uh, get in these hollowed out artillery tanks. They took the guns out of them, as you probably know, and uh, put the infantry into them. And down you pelted. And this was a good way to go to battle, believe you me. Hell, a lot better than on your flat feet. And uh, mind you, you were uh, a sitting, you were a target. Um A lot of infantrymen would sooner be on their belly than in a tin can, you know. But uh, in any event, it was a terribly exciting thing. We used them many times on the run down to Falaise. Well, the Cameron Highlanders, uh, who were the Divisional Support Battalion, were, as I think I mentioned, uh, composed basically of mobile, carrier-borne, vehicle-borne, track-vehicle-borne, machine guns, and 4.2-inch mortars, heavy mortars. And uh, they were held at divisional headquarters, and when any any brigade or unit was going to do an attack, these people would be, the members of this, the Cameron Highlanders of Ottawa would be signed out under command to the brigade commander or the battalion commander, or perhaps they would be concentrated under the divisional commander, the divisional artillery commander. And... Um, in each platoon of machine guns, you had four Vickers machine guns. And um, in the mortar platoons, you had two sections of mortars of two mortars each. And they were tremendous, particularly at the Falaise Gap. Well, they saved our lives, God knows how many times. I mean, these, particularly at night, you could set up these machine guns on what we called fixed lines on crossing fire in front of your position. And when those fellas started ripping off, you know 500 rounds a minute to, to intense fire, uh, there's a lot of lead going by. And they, they were terrific. They saved a lot of people's lives. And, uh, and the mortars as well uh, had the same kind of role. And um, these guys, uh, well you know, by this time we, they were all pros. And they knew what to do, and they knew how to do it, and they knew how to set up their equipment quickly, and they knew when to sustain fire and when to cut it. And you know, I mean, they were in great shape. The mortars were used usually in a defensive role um, when when somebody was being attacked, or in a in a sort of a counter mortar role. If we saw a mortar going off, we found out where it was located. Uh, We would fire at them. Uh, We also had an interesting thing. All the maps, we used to have what they called a defense overlay, which was based on the intelligence, and it was a piece of perspex which you laid over your map, and it showed you where the known German positions were. And, of course, both the machine guns and the mortars, if a battalion was going in on an attack, the artillery officer who was the fire planning officer, the attached artillery officer, would assign certain tasks to the 4.2-inch mortars, certain tasks of fields of fire to the machine guns, and certain uh, artillery targets to the artillery. And so they took part in virtually every operation. And as soon as an infantry battalion had gained its objective, it would have those machine guns right with it, and they would be part of the consolidation plan. And... um, they, they they were with mixed up with the infantry the whole time i mean they were and great friends they liked each other very well this business the first time we really used these uh infantry personnel carriers uh was that operation totalize which was uh, conducted by the second canadian corps commanded by general simmons and he was the one who really invented this technique and uh It took place at night, the first assault. And everybody said, how's this going to happen? Well, it was absolutely fascinating. What they did was to give the tank squadrons that were shepherding, if I could use the word, the armored personnel carriers, they gave them bearings to run on. And how do you keep on a bearing in the tank? Well, there are many ways. Uh, One way is to set your tank turret On the bearing that you have to go on and make a chalk mark on the turret, on the moving part, and a chalk mark down below. And as long as you've got those two lines, one on top of the other, theoretically, at least, you're on your line. And there were all kinds of tricks like that. Some of them more sophisticated, but not much more effective. And um, then the infantry were, were in these APCs. Well, they had specific areas to which they had to go, and they didn't all get there, obviously. But uh, in order to assist that and to give them some light, we had what they call fighting light. It was done with searchlights. Battle illumination, it goes by a dozen different names. Um, but in effect, they use a defused searchlight and bounce the light off the clouds and so on and so forth. Probably the best direction keeper was to use a Bofors anti, which is about a 30-millimeter anti-aircraft gun, uh, rapid firing, and then it has a tracer plug on the end of it. So at night, if you put those on the bearing that you want the troops to follow, just keep popping them off and they can see those out of the tank and they ride down the line, in effect. And it, it was as simple or as complicated as that. The fact of the matter is, and uh, if you read uh, the late General Kurt Meyer, the German divisional commander's essays on this, and he wrote a number of them, he had to fight his way back to where, so he could, I mean, he was completely bypassed places like Hubert and uh, Verrier Ridge and Borgibus and all of those places. They just disappeared in the night. We were a couple of thousand meters past them by morning. I, as I say, I, I shouldn't say we, because I, I didn't come in until the next day uh, in the daylight. There were tragic moments in that attack, too, because uh, as we were preparing to launch Totalize, the uh, Air Force came over, and uh, I don't think it was entirely their fault, but we had these smoke candles, colored smoke, which we were supposed to put out to demark the demarcation line of the forward defended localities, and somebody in the back end put these out. In a panic, a moment of panic, I think. And uh, actually, they were flying fortresses, and they were coming over in their big square. And uh, I was lying on my back with broad daylight, about noontime The troops had gone through the night before; the first wave had gone through the night before. And um, looking up, and suddenly, they—you could see these bomb doors opening. And down they came, and uh, they just pasted the hell out of us. My unit was all right, but I was just in front of the gun area and there were a lot of casualties in the gun area, a big artillery concentration area. And uh, our divisional commander was hit and wounded and evacuated. Uh, It was a pretty nasty thing. And uh, a couple of days later, as we were approaching the Liaison River, which my unit was on the right flank, we got our crossings for the armor on the river. While we were doing that, I just had the assault element with me, but all my cook vehicles and administrative vehicles were back on the, in a place called bretterville Lieuse. It was a big quarry, and most of the divisional support was in there, and we got bombed by the Brits and the Canadians right along the Confalais Road. And I lost all my supply vehicles and so on and quite a few good friends, but uh, and that was tragic. Fortunately, it didn't really affect the outcome of the battle. Slowed things down a little, quite a lot, as you can imagine. But uh, we then went from there. Of course, uh, my unit—I uh, was taken out of uh, out of the third division at that stage. Uh, the fourth division, who were over at Trun and Chambois, right, closing the gap, uh, they were running out of infantry. So my my particular regiment was taken out of uh, three div. And sent to Trun, which is right north of Chambois, which is where we closed the gap, and we were there for that. That was some kind of a party, I can tell you. We took in more prisoners; he just wouldn't have believed it. But the carnage that was—that uh, had been the Seventh German Army—it was just unbelievable. I suppose the key to the whole of uh, the whole of that first landing or the first battle in Normandy was the capturing. Finally, the capturing of the city of Caen, the destruction of that city, which had been, in fact, a D-Day objective. Carpacay aerodrome had to be taken out first. And, and finally, uh, I wasn't commanding the unit at that stage, but this, this unit, this SD&G Highlanders, plus elements of the Sherbrooke fusiliers were the first people into Caen. We had had a whole series of battles before that at uh, Bureau and Grucci, those were very costly battles. We lost an awful lot of people. And uh, Rad Walters, who, who I think you've talked to, uh, his tanks uh, and the SDNG Highlanders uh, took off on the Cambaya Road, and we went down there. And we were uh, we bombed the place very heavily, as you know. Before that, it was just in rubble. But we were the first people in there. or My unit was, and uh, First Canadians. The Brits were coming from another flank, and there were some free French fighting in, in for us in, right in the city that banded themselves together and so on. And uh, so the, the capture of that place was really uh, a great triumph. Everybody felt pretty good about that because it gave us some, it gave us some, well, I guess morale booster as much as anything else, and it was a good battle to win, and it was a tough one. But it wasn't the last by any means. As soon as we got Con, we we were plugged up again. We didn't get out of there for another month. You know, really break out until the fourth of August on uh, Operation totalized that I was telling you about. Uh, I guess it was the fifth of August, fifth or sixth. Oh, Con was Con at the beginning. It was indescribable the damage that had been done with the exception of the cathedral, just like Cologne, was sitting right there, William the Conqueror's Cathedral, damaged, but there, standing, with its spires and the whole darn bit. You just couldn't believe it. And um, the people of Caen lost, I mean, the the citizens, there were about 3,000 of them killed, I think. Uh, You'd have to talk to some statistician about this, but by that time, we had lost in third Div. We had lost at least three thousand men, so it was about even. Uh, they, well, you just can't be obliterated. You can't obliterate a city that's got civilians in it without killing an awful lot of people. And uh, mind you, if we hadn't done it, we never would have gotten in. It had it had to be dealt with, and uh, that's one of the terrible things about war, you know. The, the, Decisions have to be taken on the spot, and uh, a lot of people get hurt. Well, of course, after we got into Con, the next battle was Totalize. And after Totalize, uh, which finally took Khan, uh, Falaise, um, my, the battalion that I was commanding was detached from the 3rd Division, and sent over to the 4th Armored Division to supplement their infantry. who They were well under strength by this time. They'd had a tremendous number of casualties. And our battalion did an overnight march. It took us a day and a night to finally march there on our flat feet. We got to Trun, and Trun was the key to actually closing the gap. The road from Trun... It went down to where the Americans were. That's where it happened, and uh, I moved in there uh, with my men. The night it was raining, the place was burning. Uh, I had a support company behind me that had come with me of machine guns, and um, a section of mortars from the Cameron Highlanders. And we took up our position and uh, got our. I got the battalion deployed along the Deves River, two companies forward and two back. And uh, we were starting to have a a terrible problem dealing with the prisoners of war because they were just giving up. And uh, they were being bombed at night and uh, the tactical air force was just cutting them to ribbons plus a lot of artillery fire. And uh, they were giving up in hundreds, literally. And... uh, that took up more, more of my men than I was happy about because somebody had to put them in a cage and examine them and get them to the hell out of the way. And that wasn't easy. Uh, but it was interesting because about the second day we were there, uh, General Many, who was the Colonel General uh, of the 7th Army Armored Corps, and he had about seven Tiger tanks, I guess, and about... 600 Panzer Grenadiers. And he decided he was going to break out. And unfortunately, he decided that he was going to do that on my front, and he drove up with his tanks and on the other side of the river. And uh, there were a series of weirs holding back the water in this river as it went down. And uh, they just blew those weirs right out of the water, and all the water went down the river and it was a solid gravel bottom, and over he came. And they overran one of my companies. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, when they, the tanks tried to get up from the riverbank, there were a bunch of very narrow roads dug into the side of the hill. And three or four of the tanks got into those and got stuck. And my jokers just jumped on top and threw a couple of smoke grenades down the air intake and that's a very good way of clearing people out of a tank. And up comes the general. So he was my guest, my personal guest, for the next four or five days. I took him into my headquarters. And incidentally, his uniform was right down in Cornwall in the sd museum, or one of the ones. And uh, that was uh, pretty exciting stuff. And uh, however, we, we counterattacked and got back on track, uh, cleared them out of there, and... Uh, Retained our position. But from then on, right down the road from me, I was running a, a carrier platoon to the next little village where Colonel Curry won the Victoria Cross. He was he was there all by himself. He was the last of the infantry in 4 Div. And uh, a very gallant officer, obviously. So that was an exciting battle. But to get out of there, when we started moving off to chase these fellows down the left flank, uh... I couldn't get out of Trun. There were carts, uh, upside down, vehicles, burned out vehicles, dead people, horses. It was unbelievable. And what we did was to take our carriers with a tow hook chain and on the back of it and pick up the Germans' bodies, take their identifications off, And take them in and put them to the side of the road and uh, so on and so forth. Finally, we had to get bulldozers from the engineers to get us out of there. It was unbelievable. I mean, the whole solid country road, just full. And the smell, I'll never get over that as long as I live. uh, If I smell anything bad now, I'm practically sick in my stomach. That stench was unbelievable. We were there, well, not for very long after, after that part was all over. And then we started on our run, you know, for Cap Grisnay and Boulogne and uh, Calais and all of those places down the West Wall. There's a lot of controversy uh, about closing the gap at Falaise. Some people say, and I think with justification, that we, the Canadians, didn't move as fast as we could have. Uh, we didn't exploit some of the successes that we had. Uh, the mayor, I was a battalion, humble battalion commander, so I didn't uh, don't, can't give you a, a profound philosophic explanation of why we took longer than we should have, but there is no question about it. We took too long to get to Falaise. And uh, I personally sat... Uh, on the river, we, we got the crossings for the armor, and I sat there for a day and a half before I saw any armor. It didn't arrive, uh, mind you. Uh, uh, there, there are reasons for that, I'm sure, but we were slow. There's no question about it. We were slow getting to fillets, and the result of that was that a lot of people got away. Uh, the Americans uh, were at the bottom end. The other the other prong of the pincers, they were pretty well where they were supposed to be and we were slow getting there. When, when we got there, uh, the 4th Armored Division uh, did a super job, but they were worn out. They'd been fighting all the way down through Totalize and that whole run up to Khan. And their, their infantry battalions and their infantry brigade, 10th Infantry Brigade, were well under strength. I don't think they had more than 30 or 40 men in the company at that stage. So... It's one of those things about the war that there are a lot of questions asked and not too many sensible answers. But I personally think we took too long getting there. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Was it a success? Yes, of course it was a success. But uh, the question is, if we had been on time, would we have, I'm sure if we had closed that gap a little sooner, a lot of Germans and a lot of tanks and a lot of equipment wouldn't have gone back up through and across the same. We'd have bottled a whole damn bunch of them up, and we didn't do that. We didn't do that. It's hard to say uh, what that delay cost us. Uh, I really can't comment on that, uh, except to say that uh, a lot of men and equipment got away that shouldn't have gotten away, got through the bag we didn't quite close the neck of the bag. And, they, and we, obviously our life would have been a lot happier and a lot easier if we could have bottled it up completely and earlier. As I talk, I keep thinking of other things and uh, I've almost forgot to tell you about air support, close air support, it was fantastic. We had God knows how many airplanes, I'm talking about ground attack airplanes and uh, Spitfires and the whole bit. And uh, we had two groups working with us, two RAF groups, one Canadian group. And these fellas, it got to the point where they would send down a a liaison officer, a controller, an air controller, who would be with one of my forward companies. And uh, if I could identify a target to him, so that he could get a map reference for it, and put a couple of rounds of colored smoke on it with any one of the mortars that we had. These guys would fly what they called cab rank. They would bring in a flight of five or six airplanes, some with 20 millimeter shells, some with rockets. And They would orbit, and if they called it loitering. They'd loiter above, our, and he would call them down, identify the target, And it was fascinating. I used to listen to this guy and say, can you, you know, hello, Charlie, this is red somebody or other. (laughs) They got their own language, you know. And he would say, can you you identify the target? And the fellow would come back, yes, I can. He'd say, well, take it out. We were supposed to leave something like 500 yards between us and the nearest bombs and stuff. Well, it got a lot closer than that. These guys got so good. It was, they were just, almost as good, almost as predictable as artillery fire. I mean, if they could see it, they could hit it. And they could see almost everything. And uh, we got on a real buddy system with these guys. They wanted to know what the ground battle was like. And we wanted to know how they did this stuff. So I used to get these fellas... I nearly always had them. They wanted to go on night patrols and stuff like that. And they, of course, they weren't trained. And I said, you don't really want to do that. They'd say, yeah, come on now, you know. And we would send officers back. It was a good way of giving them a rest. For a couple of days to stay with one of the squadrons or flights back at the ALG, which is an advanced landing ground. And we were really just like that. It was a fantastic series of cooperative successes uh, they were tremendous just tremendous everybody always uh, asks you about the German soldier and his equipment was it good or was it bad And uh, I think I've made it pretty clear so far that they were extremely capable soldiers by and large very very well trained brave uh, tenacious vicious good scrappers There's no question about that. And they were certainly very well armed. Their uh, automatic weapons were superior to ours, with the possible exception of the Bren gun, which was uh, our section weapon, automatic weapon, and a very good one. But, you know, our tanks just weren't on the same playing field. You get a Tiger tank with an 88-millimeter gun in the front of it, you know, unless you can get into a position where you can blow its tracks off or hit it on the turret ring, or so, if you just go firing it with the weapons we had at the glacius, glacius plate, as they call it, front panel, we're never going to get them. I mean, there's just no way. Uh, they are. They were really un, almost unbeatable, uh, and it wasn't a level playing field. Our, our weapons weren't as good. We finally got a seventeen pounder, which we put one in each uh, in each troop. We called it a firefly. And that's a good gun. That was our anti tank gun. That improved things tremendously. Before that we were hitting, you know, seventy five millimeters in short barrels against those guys. Just forget it. You know, it wasn't good at all. But the Germans the Germans were great, uh, great fighters. So uh, I can say that now. I didn't feel that way at the time. I hated every damn one of them, but uh, I've learned, that uh, you know, that I know from the experience that I've gained since then that they were just as good as they could be. And, of course, they always keep saying uh, the real cream of the German army was on the Russian front. Well, uh, I'm just glad they stayed there, if that's really true, but, because we had enough trouble with them, the ones we met. I guess that. Uh, from the point of view of morale, the worst period for the Canadians were those weeks and weeks and weeks from the time that we landed on the beaches until we closed the gap at Falaise. We were doing these limited objective attacks uh, very often uh, against pieces of ground that had no tactical significance, whatever. And you can say what you like, uh, but at the lower level, we didn't understand the strategy. It wasn't explained as it should have been, in my view. I'm not sure uh, we'd have been much better at it, but it would have been good to know. I mean, some very good officers, I believe, lost their jobs because they said, hey, enough is enough. Somebody better figure out a better way or tell me what the hell's going on you know, at the lower level. It wasn't clear, nobody gave a damn what General Patton was doing, nobody had ever heard of San Lo. I mean, you gotta understand that when you're in battle, even as a battalion commander or a divisional commander, your world is about four kilometers deep by three kilometers wide, and that's it, man. You know, you don't know, and, and you just do what you're told, and the fellow who's telling you what to do, you have to hope, knows what he's about. A lot of the stuff that went on in that particular war didn't filter down to the level it should have. I mean, and part of the reason was that you just can't pull a company out of battle and give them a briefing. You know, it's easy to be critical, but to put it right, he would have had to have somebody come down and explain, you, you know, you can't go into the into the legion hall and have give these guys a lecture. It, it's a very difficult thing to manage, and uh, there you go. The decisions as a result of this that have to be made still have to be made. Um, it, 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 it was unlike the training period where everybody knew exactly what was going to happen, and you got briefed and sat down at a sand table or a map exercise, or a thing they called a chute, a tactical exercise without troops. You know, where you could plan the whole thing, and everybody knew, and you had an umpire standing around telling you when you made a balls of it, and so on and so forth. But uh, battle isn't like that, and uh, it, it cannot be, even with the best will in the world. So I guess uh, we didn't do too badly.
0: That was Major General Roger Rowley. You can learn more about Brigadier General Radley Walters, the famous Canadian tank ace mentioned in this interview, by listening to his episode of Warriors in Their Own Words. The link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director. And Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>